And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast here on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show. And I hope everyone has enjoyed our last couple of shows where we took at the took a look at the Korean giant monster film, Yongari. Uh, pretty much Korea's main entry into the Daikaiju genre from the uh, 1960s. And our special connection tie-in with Planet of the Apes Month, which was Time of the Apes. Hope everybody enjoyed that because that was a bit of a chore to get through. But it turned out to be, I think, a pretty good episode and uh, had some fun with all the Mystery Science Theater 3000 connections there. But today we're going to get back into it in the traditional Godzilla way, and we're getting you know, no more traditional than, than you get this film right here. We're taking a look at the original 1954 Gojira, as well as the 1956 U.S. release Godzilla King of the Monsters. So we're going to take a look at that. No comics this time out, I think. Gojira needs a kind of full episode onto itself. Uh, we do have some news here. Uh, Sony has announced a few more uh, Godzilla-related Blu-ray releases coming out uh, this September uh, in the September time frame. First up, we have the Godzilla 2000 release on Blu-ray. Now, this is an interesting pickup because this is the first time Godzilla 2000 has been released since it was released on DVD, also by Sony. But this release uh, is marks the first time that the Japanese language version of the film is being released here in the United States. The Blu-ray contains a Japanese uh, version as well as the Sony TriStar prepared U.S. version. As near as I can tell, it does not have the uh, Toho prepared international dub, which if you listen to our Godzilla 2000 episode, you'll recall Sony was not happy with and produced proceeded to produce their own dub which is the one you'll find in that blu-ray we also have a double feature of uh, godzilla mothra king Ghidorah, all giant monsters attack and godzilla against mechagodzilla uh, two of the later millennium films and uh, these had previous no real surprise here as they had released all the films up to these on blu-ray double feature so no real shock to seeing these on blu-ray double feature and then the the one that's really interesting is they're doing a triple feature of all three of the Heisei Rebirth of Mothra films, one, two, and three. Now, Rebirth of Mothra one and two had been previously released by Sony on both VHS and DVD. In fact, I picked up the DVD double feature of those not too long ago, uh, a few months back, actually. But Mothra three had never been released over here officially. And it, and, and it was on Crackle at one point, but I never got a chance to watch it, and then they took it down. So I've never seen that one, so I'll definitely be picking up that Blu-ray triple feature, which means I'll have to figure out something to do with the double feature, but that's a first-world problem uh, for a Daikaiju fan right there. Speaking of DVDs and Blu-rays, I have a guest review that I'll plug in right here from my good friend, the man who's been watching Godzilla movies with me longer than anyone else in the world, my brother Jay. And uh, my brother Jason has sent in a little bit of news and some updates and some reviews. So let's get right to it. Jay writes, stuffed with turtle meat. Hey, yo. I picked up the Gamera 11 movie set on four DVDs the other day at Walmart for $9.98. It has all the Gameras except Gamera the Brave, which is never in these sets. It's $8.99 on Amazon, so listeners who may be interested can go to the Two True Freaks website and use their Amazon link to order it. Shameless plug. Hey, always appreciate it. Anyway, back to the set. While I have not watched them all yet, the quality seems pretty good. Obviously, the Blu-ray releases of the Gamera films, which I also own, will look better overall, but these are still really nice and clean. The movies are in Japanese with English subtitles but there are no special features. Obviously, this is a budget release and it has certain shortcomings, but they are widescreen, well worth the investment. Uh, actually, if I hadn't 
Jay picked me up the volume one of the Gamera Blu-rays and I picked up volume two. If I hadn't gotten the, gone that route, I would have gotten this 11 movie set probably. He continues, speaking of being well worth the investment, Mystery Science Theater 3000 versus Gamera, which is Mystery Science Theater uh, 3000 Volume 21, is another great set, especially for those of us who love MST3K. Note, only $38.98 on Amazon for this awesome 5-disc set. These are Shout Factory releases, so they are top-notch. Plus, the MST3K versions are so dang funny. Agreed on that. Those MST3K Gamera's are some of the best they ever did. Uh, Jay continues, okay, to step away from Gamera for a minute, let's talk about the big G. So the four double-disc Blu-ray sets released by Sony are also now part of my collection. The beautiful widescreen HD transfers are great. I know that some people have complained about the audio, but it was obviously not an issue for me on the ones that I have watched. It obviously doesn't help the story, <coughs> Final Wars, <coughs> but man, does it look good. I'm sure I'll have more to say, but this will have to do for now. Keep them stomping. Jason. So, thanks for that. Uh, those guest reviews, uh, Jay. Really appreciate it. I haven't had a chance to watch any of those movies. I've, I've checked them out, but I haven't had a chance to sit down with them. We've just been so busy this summer, as, as a lot of us are. You know, it's supposed to be when uh, summer's supposed to be when you're supposed to have vacation, but sometimes you run into a situation, like Sean Engel said a few weeks back, that you need a vacation from your vacation. Uh, in other news, Legendary's Godzilla 2014 has crossed the $200 million gross mark domestically, as well as passing, at almost the exact same time, the $300 million mark international gross. Now, this was a film that a lot of pundits had said had no chance of crossing $200 million because it seemed to have kind of topped out at about $175 million, but the film had more legs than I think they realized in the domestic market and made it above two hundred. Now, not, not hugely above two hundred, but it did make it to $200 million which is kind of the new threshold milestone for blockbusters in the United States. And 500 million internationally, 500 million plus is a really good number for this film that was, you know, it didn't have the strong international ties of something like Transformers 4, the, you know, to, to pull in a big gross in, in China. And I'm, I'm really impressed with it. In fact, so impressed was Legendary that this year at uh, what used to be called San Diego Comic-Con, and now they insist we call Comic-Con International, we got news on the sequel, Godzilla 2. And not only is Gareth Edwards going to be returning as director once he is done with his uh, Star, uh, Star Wars franchise film over at uh, Disney, uh, Godzilla is, of course, coming back, but we are also getting not one, not two, but three old-school old guard Toho monsters in the form of Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidorah. And I am very, very interested to see how we are going to work those three monsters into the world that was created in Godzilla 2014. Rodan and Mothra, I can see how they would work. They're Earth monsters. They kind of make sense with what we've already seen from the new Godzilla and the Muto. King Ghidorah, on the other hand, that's going to be a little harder to explain. And I'm very interested to see where uh, where King Ghidorah's origins are going to be in the new film. And that's, uh, I think, 2018. So we got uh, quite a while to wait for that. But the first one, I tell you what, you know, we waited for the first one pretty much since, you know, when did uh, pre-production start on what would eventually become Godzilla 2014, like 2003? So, I can wait. Godzilla fans can always wait for a good Godzilla movie. That's all the news I have right now. Anything interesting comes up, we will, of course, uh, break it on the Facebook page or, um, you know, on the next episode. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and get right into our coverage of Gojira. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman.
six monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. And we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. Gojira was released on November 3rd, 1954 by Toho Company Limited in Japan. The director was Ishiro Honda. Screenwriters were Ishiro Honda and Takeo Murata, taken from a story by Shigeru Kayama. Music was by Akira Ifakube, and the producer was Tomoyuki Tanaka. A Japanese fishing boat mysteriously sinks near Odo Island right after a strange, blinding flash of light was witnessed by the fishermen. Another boat is dispatched to investigate, but meets with the same fate. A few survivors manage to wash up on Odo Island, where one old villager blames the disasters on Godzilla, a great sea beast of legend. Eager for news about the survivors, a small team of reporters arrives on the island. That night, after an ancient ritual to keep the monster at bay, a massive storm, along with something else, hits the island with a young boy seeing the cause of the destruction. An expedition from the mainland is quickly dispatched, headed up by noted archaeologist Dr. Kohei Yamane. On the island, Dr. Yamane and his team discover massive radioactive footprints, along with a trilobite, a prehistoric worm thought to have been extinct for millions of years. The investigation is cut short, however, by the arrival of the giant monster, Godzilla. The monster stomps over the island and back to the sea, leaving a trail of radioactivity in his wake. Back in Tokyo, Dr. Yamane presents his theory to, to the government that Godzilla is a prehistoric creature reawoken by modern-day atomic tests. Some factions of the government fear that this information will cause widespread panic but in the end, the public is informed of the threat, and preparations are begun to defend against Godzilla. The naval fleet is mobilized, and then bombard the area where Godzilla had been active with depth charges, and believe the monster dead. Dr. Yamane seemingly stands alone in his desire to see the beast studied rather than killed. Meanwhile, a drama of a much smaller scale, but of no less importance, has been playing out. Dr. Yamane's daughter, Emiko, is betrothed to the brilliant young scientist, Dr. Daisuke Serizawa. But Emiko is torn, for she loves Hidato Ogata, captain of a salvage ship who has been working with the fishing boat sinkings. Going to visit Serizawa to tell him that she is breaking off the engagement, Emiko instead witnesses the results of his experiment, a horrifying secret which Serizawa asks her to tell no one of. Unable to break off the engagement, Emiko swears herself to secrecy. The public is skittish after Godzilla reappears to terrorize a pleasure cruise. He soon makes landfall in Tokyo, climbing out of the harbor and leveling everything in his path. A commuter train comes crashing into his foot, and the cars are lifted and tossed about like toys. Godzilla's attack is short-lived, though, and he returns to the harbor. Now having seen firsthand the power of the monster, plans are quickly put into action. An electrical barricade of high-voltage lines is erected around the city and the military is on high alert. Godzilla returns and wades into the barricade. Though it stops him momentarily, the beast begins to bellow radioactive mist from its mouth, melting the electrical poles to slag. He then makes his way into the city, using the atomic breath to melt tanks, blow up cars, and set people and buildings ablaze. The military tries to stop him, but they are no match for his power, and their attacks do nothing to the giant. As district after district crumbles before Godzilla, a squadron of fighter jets is scrambled to stop him, but they fare no better and are destroyed to the man. With Tokyo a sea of flames, Godzilla finally returns to the sea once again. The next morning, makeshift hospitals are overflowing with the dead and dying. Many people have suffered massive doses of radiation. Emiko knows that Serizawa's discovery could kill Godzilla, 
but her soul is torn by her vow of secrecy. Fearing that Godzilla could return at any moment, she confides in Ogata about Serizawa's secret, the Oxygen Destroyer, a device which uses micro-oxygen to liquefy oxygen and living cells, dissolving their flesh instantly. Emiko and Ogata confront Serizawa, who refuses to let the Oxygen Destroyer be used, fearful that such a weapon would be worse than the atomic bomb. Ogata demands that Serizawa let them use it, questioning his motives, and the two men clash briefly with their fists. Hearing the sung prayer of a choir of children being broadcast over the radio, Serizawa knows what he must do. Burning all of his notes and research, he tells Emiko and Ogata that the oxygen destroyer will only be used once. Emiko, realizing what Serizawa means by this, breaks down in tears. A mission is quickly put together. Serizawa and Ogata will, close, will get close to Godzilla using deep-sea diving suits, then unleash the oxygen destroyer. The men dive down and find Godzilla resting on the seafloor. Once in place, Serizawa sends Ogata back to the surface as he prepares the oxygen destroyer. As Ogata rises, Serizawa slices his lifelines with a knife and holds the destroyer in his hands as it activates. On the ship, Ogata orders Serizawa pulled up, but all that they retrieve are the cut lines. Dr. Serizawa, knowing that the secret of the oxygen destroyer will be forever be in his mind, has ensured that his terrible discovery will go to the grave with him. Godzilla is caught in the micro-oxygen burst and rises to the surface to roar his defiance amidst the roiling ocean, but he dips back below and is reduced to bones. The threat is over, but at a terrible cost. And as Dr. Yamane grimly muses, unless we stop the proliferation of atomic weapons and tests, who is to say that there are not even more destructive forces waiting to be unleashed upon mankind? But for now, it is the dawn of a new hope. Ooh, it feels good to get back to this classic film, which I wanted to wait until we got to a nice round number because I didn't want to go in order. I, I like jumping around sometimes, and I've gotten back into going in order. That's why I didn't start with Godzilla right at the front. And I think that I wanted to get a few more podcasts under my belt and get a little more seasoned doing the show to really do this film justice and what it deserves. Now, one little note I do want to say throughout the synopsis and in my notes, I refer to the monster as Godzilla instead of Gojira. The reason for this is for clarity, because you want to get literal. The monsters Gojira and Godzilla are the same monster. Godzilla is simply the preferred American pronunciation and spelling that Toho Studios uses. So, you know, sometimes we get folks that get very picky about using the name Gojira when watching a, a Japanese exclusive film. If for our case, for clarity, I'm just going to say Godzilla. And in fact, when I was writing up the synopsis, I kept switching back and forth between the two as I was typing it. So they're interchangeable terms. The opening credits that start the film are very stark, very much what I would consider almost a German-style expressionist film. White text on a black background with no um, flourish, no uh, panache, just very, very stark. And it sets the tone for the film, which is very, you know, takes good advantage of the fact that it, it is in black and white. It's, this is not a situation like we would get later with the first Gamera film where they shot in black and white to make things simpler. Uh, this was, not only was this a bit earlier than that, but the black and white was used to great effect from a visual standpoint throughout the film. The opening scene of the, uh, the, the fishing boat being destroyed, uh, the, the fishermen on the dock, on the deck, excuse me, see a blinding flash of light, and then it's immediately followed by a shockwave. Uh, clearly, this is an allusion to the atomic bomb, and this is the first of many that we will get in the film. You know, this film was being was made in 1954. We're less than uh, less than a decade removed from the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and so very much fresh in the minds of the people of Japan. And this imagery is not done by accident. An interesting uh, aspect when we get to Odo Island, the and this would be recycled uh, many times later in the series. We saw this as recently on this show, uh, on the episode covering Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, all giant monsters attack. Uh, the younger Odo Islanders consider Godzilla a relic, something from times past that's not relevant. It's only the older, crotchety old uh, villager who talks about the old ways. 
and one of the old ways they talk about is the sacrificing of a girl to the ocean to appease Godzilla. I thought this was uh, interesting, um, this specific thing about sacrificing girls, in that this is a direct reference to King Kong, where on Skull Island they, they you know, provide, prepare the bride for Kong as a sacrifice. King Kong was a very influential film in the creation of Godzilla. This idea of a giant legendary monster, I think, plays in very strongly. We see uh, not this is why Kong was as popular as he was after the war when American films began to be released in Japan and why less than a decade after this film we would get a crossover between King Kong and Godzilla, a film we'll get to at some point later on this show. There's a, a scene that I really like in the Japanese version, which does not make it into the American film. When they're launching the expedition that is going to Odo Island, Dr. Yamane's expedition, uh, everyone is waving and cheering and you know, wishing them well as they go off on the sea on their voyage. Well, we see Dr. Serizawa standing amongst the crowd, and he is the only one not cheering. And we know it's him from his eye patch, but he has a stern, dour expression on his face watching as they go off. And Sarasau was a very, you know, kind of inscrutable character for a lot of this film. And this scene really puts over that because he is the one person not jubilant and celebrating and cheering them. So I, I really liked that. And it doesn't, I can see why it was cut in the American one. In the American version, this is a different scene, and Steve Martin is in it, so I can see why they took Sarazawa out. Uh, but it was a nice bit of foreshadowing that this dour figure was going to be an important role in the film. On Odo Island, of course, Dr. Yamane and his assistants used Geiger counters. Now, Geiger counters, they were not an uncommon sight in Japan in this period, you know, for the years following the draw, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So Japanese viewers would probably be very familiar with Geiger counters and what the, the clicking sound meant on them. One of the interesting aspects of this is having seen this film, or the American version of this film, when I was a very young boy, I knew what a Geiger counter was years before I probably should have had any exposure to that sort of uh, science. So that always makes me smile. And every time I see the old-fashioned Geiger counters and clicking, it always brings me back to watching these films as a, as a young boy. Um, something is something that a lot of modern audiences make is complaining about how long we before we see a monster. Well... Uh, it is 21 minutes into this film before we see Godzilla. And that's a good, almost a quarter of the running length of the film before we see Godzilla. Uh, it's not that we haven't felt his presence, but when we physically see him come over the hill in Odo Island. So it takes takes its time building up, and this is not an uncommon thing, uh, technique used in giant monster films. Although we would get away from this as the Godzilla series continued as it became clear that people were there to see the monsters and they became more the focus. Uh, Gareth Edwards specifically took some flack for how long it took for Godzilla to get on screen in Godzilla 2014. I had a problem with that because comparing the lengths of films and the, you know how long we are in the story, it's very similar to what we get here. There's a bit of some pseudoscience thrown around by Dr. Yamane, and some of it simply does not work. At one point, when addressing the government, Dr. Yamane says that Godzilla would be about 2 million years old. And now we know now that the dinosaurs died out uh, about 65 million years ago, not 2 million. So there's very unlikely that this uh, prehistoric dinosaur-like creature would only be two year, 2 million years old. He's 2 years old. He's just a baby. 2 million years old. So, But again, at the science of the times, this wasn't as known. So you can let it slide. It does stand out a bit when Yamane who is this authority, says it with such, uh, you know, a level voice, and he clearly believes it. But again, that's it's just a relic of the time of when the film was made. A Godzilla's height is specifically stated to be 50 meters, which is approximately 165 feet. This would get changed in the American version, and um, the reason for that is because 165 feet would not make him as tall as some buildings in the United States, and so they changed his height to 400 feet in order to make him seem larger in scale, whereas 165 feet, 50 meters in Tokyo in the 1950s would be a very large sight indeed. Uh, I spoke just before about Yamane's scientific explanation and the pseudoscience. It's fleshed out more 
in this version than what we got in the American version. And it sounds plausible for the most part in a science fiction-y sort of way. And, you know, we'd get away from this where science was kind of just thrown out the window. My favorite example, of course, is Jet Jaguar programs himself to grow giant. And it's like, robots don't work that way. But here, Yamane talks about, um, you know, that the prehistoric life could have been dormant under the sea and then reawoken. And then that's why there's a trellobite um, underneath his heel that obviously this was something that he trod on and was in dormancy with him. As I said, it doesn't really hold up from a you know, actual science standpoint, but from a science fiction-y science standpoint, it at least sounds reasonable, which is what I really like to see in uh, especially giant monster films. As long as it sounds reasonable, I'm willing to accept it. After Dr. Yamane's presentation, there's an argument in the diet between two, two different side, two different factions about making the information public. Now, this, again, was a scene that was cut from the U.S. version. It's a realistic reaction from a government, especially one which has been uh, not not infrequently accused of keeping things from the public. The idea that if we tell them that there's this great beast <laughs> lurking in the ocean, that, you know, people are going to be, it's going to be panic and looting. And, but another faction saying that the people have a right to know, they have a right to make preparations and to find, you know, help themselves not be killed by this thing if it shows up. This was interesting to me also in that a very similar sort of uh, argument takes place in Prophecies of Nostradamus, and that was, you know, 25 years after this film, and it's still that same idea that the government is hiding things from us, that they're, you know, we can't create a panic, you know, we can't create a panic. So I, I really like that it was it was here right from the start, and even though that's kind of a cliche, it, it's one that makes sense. It's totally believable that the government would try to keep a lid on this and that certain myth factions in the government would say, no, we need to get this out to as many people as possible. And I like that they took the time to show that conflict. There's a scene that's very often referenced when talking about the uh, Japanese version of this film with a couple of, or three passengers on a train. Now this is cut from the U.S. version and specifically references Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One of the writers says, Fallout, irradiated tuna, and now this? And the other guy goes, ugh, shelters again? And it's clear that what they're, for, you know, they're talking about having to go into the fallout uh, shelters after the bombs were dropped at the end of World War II. Now, a lot of times when you see this scene referenced online, uh, they make, and I've in fact said this myself, so I'm, I'm just as guilty of it. Um, supposedly, one of the, in, one of the uh, characters says, I survived Nagasaki and now this. Now, I have the um, double-disc release from Sony, and the subtitles on that do not have that line. They don't refer to Nagasaki specifically. And I've checked on different, I've, like I said, I've seen this, I don't, I'm trying to wonder if this is maybe almost an urban legend that that was the line they said rather than one that was implied. I've checked numerous different subtitle feeds. I've checked different releases of the film, the Criterion release, and they all say the similar things. I mean, a, a word or two might be different, but there's not any indication of one character saying, I survived Nagasaki and now this. So that was something that was very intriguing to me. How did this become such a widespread, um, and everybody knows this. Is there a kernel of truth? Was that the original uh, dialogue and then the subtitle release from Toho Scrubs It? I don't speak Japanese, so I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to keep researching into that. In any event, even though it, in the the version that we have readily available here in the States, it's not said overtly, it's clear what the intention is, and it's clear what the message is from that scene. Speaking of the war, Dr. Serizawa's scar, which requires him to wear his eye patch, is explicitly stated as being from the war. And there were some kind of oblique references to the war in the American film, but here they come right out and say that he was scarred during combat. In fact, he tells the reporter Hawagawa, who is a character that is essentially replaced by Martin in the U.S. version, we'll talk about that in a little bit, he tells the, the reporter, I don't have any German scientist associates. As Hawagawa says, oh, well, I read that you did this in a German science uh, journal. And it, uh, and this also an explicit statement of the Axis, specifically, uh, you know, the long-rumored uh, um, alliance between Japanese and German scientists for human experimentation and other atrocities. Uh, this 
is interesting enough would be brought up in the Japanese version of Frankenstein Conquers the World. <laughs> but that's that's a little out there for what we're talking about. But again, he makes a specific point of it being a German uh, uh, scientific journal and uh, Sarazawa denying it outright as if to you know reemphasize that, no, I was not part of that and I don't want anything to do with that. The introduction and the results of the oxygen destroyer are still powerful 60 years after they were shot. Uh, Sarazawa's lab looks a lot like something that James Whale might have used on a Frankenstein film. And the, the harsh lighting, the reaction of uh, Emiko as she watches and then turns away in horror. Um, Ifakube's music, which is him striking on the piano for the right moment. It's just a great scene, and it's one of the most powerful scenes in the entire Godzilla series, and it features just two humans, a fish tank, and a, a tiny little uh, device, and it's just wonderful, and still get still gets to me after uh, all these years watching that, how, much, how powerfully done that scene is. Uh, talking about powerfully shot, the uh, Godzilla's attacks. These scenes have, especially for Godzilla fans, taken on a sort of mythic quality. Um, certain shots like Godzilla's derailment of the train and then picking up the train cars in his mouth and shaking them. I mean, the, this is the stuff of legend if you're a Godzilla fan. Now, specifically attacking the train, that is another King Kong reference. Of course, in Willis O'Brien's King Kong, Kong breaks through the elevated train track and derails the train in uh, you know, one of the most famous scenes from that film. So this was a little homage from Godzilla to, uh, to the earlier scene in Kong. The electrical barricade is another very memorable sequence where, you know, the giant high-tension wires, in fact, was even mentioned in the Blue Oyster Cult uh, song as a spitting high-tension wires down. But the, uh, the real shock of that scene is with the debut of the Atomic Breath. I mean, it comes out of absolutely nowhere. You know, we've seen the flash of light, and it's a mystery. We don't know where that comes from. And then we see Godzilla breathe radiation and melt the high-tension wires and the poles, and I absolutely love it. It's a real simple effect, you know, just suit, just heating up those uh, metal models until they uh, they become molten and buckle, but it looks really good. I always like that. And just the, you know, that bit of a surprise of this monster, who's already been shown to be unstoppable, now can spew forth radiation like a living bomb. It's like, oh, man, it's just great monster movie filmmaking, just good filmmaking in general. Um, Tokyo on Fire, specifically referred to as a sea of flames in the subtitles. That's a powerful image. You know, uh, Tokyo was bombed during World War II, but it obviously was not bombed with an atomic bomb like Hiroshima and Nagasaki were. But the image of, you know, the, the capital city and the most populous city literally just on fire for a country where a lot of buildings were still made out of wood at this point is very powerful and evocative. Now, nowadays, we get the idea of whole-scale destruction of our, um, you know, cities and landmark buildings. You know, that, you know, in, in the wake of films like Armageddon and Independence Day, that's become, you know, a, a trope of the genre. But in 1954, this was something that Japanese audiences has not seen before. And I, you can, one can just imagine the response to this. Uh, and it's, it's a great effect, very simple use of optics. And optical effects, but it's really nicely put together and nicely um, composited. Again, being in black and white helps a little bit from the technical standpoint, in addition to the you know, the sheer moodiness of the film. Uh, there's a scene that is in the U.S. dub, or excuse me, in the U.S. version, but the dubbing is different, with a mother grasping at her children in the street, and she says, it's okay, it's okay, we'll be with daddy soon. And the implication here from the age of the children and the age of the mother is that uh, their father died during the war. And again, just kind of heartrending to think about this. You know, we watch a typical giant monster movie and we don't think about these things, whereas it started out here. It started out as an indictment of the killing of women and children by atomic power. And uh, not to put too fine a point on it, you know, especially... Um, you know, as an American, you know, that's something to think about. And, you know, I wasn't alive then. I doubt a lot of the people listening to this show were alive then. But it's still something that, you know, the idea of the horror of atomic war is something that, you know, we it, it needs to be fresh in your mind. And it is when you watch this film. The aftermath of the attacks, the dead and the dying laying in the hospitals, and the wailing infants, the, the crying of the infants in this scene is 
heartbreaking. And as the kids are screaming and you can just assume that they're dying of radiation poisoning. And it's like, wow, just hardcore right there. And uh, the scenes of the children being checked with Geiger counters, you know, again, another scene that I can only assume is an indictment of the West and an indictment of the States for dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it's powerful stuff. And you don't think about this when you consider a normal Godzilla film, but this is what makes this film so strong and why this created, uh, you know, why this one has held up as a critical, uh, critically acclaimed film for the most part, uh, the Japanese version especially, over the years, whereas the others are more seen as more juvenile entertainment, which is what they, you know, would devolve into. Uh, Serizawa and Ogata, their argument over the oxygen destroyer is, uh, again, another well-put-together scene. Uh, them coming to blows over it, I always I always liked. You know, at the end of the day, these are two smart, intelligent guys, but emotions are running so high that they come to fisticuffs over it. And then we get the stark shot of the blood coming from Ogata's head and uh, Emiko bandaging his head, which I always thought was very nice in black and white. Interesting here is that Serizawa's decision to burn his notes and use the oxygen destroyer is understood by both Ogata and Emiko. Whereas in the uh, the American version, it's it's cut a little bit different, and it's not really clear that they understand what Serizawa plans to do. Whereas it's clear here, watching the scene, its original context, that Emiko does in fact know that um, Serizawa plans to sacrifice himself. And that sacrifice in Godzilla's death is, again, a very well-put-together, powerful scene. It moves a little bit slowly just because it's shot underwater. I refer to this as the Thunderball effect because I'm a big James Bond fan. I love Thunderball, but, man, that movie kind of grinds to a halt when you got guys in wetsuits fighting. But here, it's you know, everyone's moving slowly to show that they're on the bottom of the, the harbor and they've got to move slowly. Um, but the scene of the oxygen destroyer with all the bubbles bursting forth and then Godzilla rising up to roar in defiance has always been great because one gets the feeling that maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe Serizawa's going to you know, use the oxygen destroyer to try and stop him, but maybe Godzilla's strong enough, but eventually he falls before the, the, you know, the scientific might of man. Which, you know, this is a message that would uh, kind of be reversed in the legendary Godzilla, but is a very common message in the Showa films, and it starts right here, that, you know, uh, science can solve our problems if we all work together. And Serizawa's sacrifice still, you know, still powerful after all these years. Dr. Yamane makes an anti-nuke statement at the end, and this kind of just, you know, again, if it wasn't clear already that this was an anti-nuclear film, um, his statement about the uh, elimination of atomic tests before more horrors are unleashed upon the world kind of makes it, you know, blatantly obvious in case you were sleeping or something. Uh, so it's a good good way to end it, and this would get reused again. I always think of the uh, overdub narration from Key Luke at the end of Rodan, which is very similar, is are there not other great monsters out there lurking in the darkness? Which, a personal favorite of mine. Uh, but the obvious, and not, I say the obvious ending, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's, it's the right ending. But sometimes the obvious thing is the right thing, is what I like to say. Uh, yeah, for a film that is uh, 60 years old, it still packs quite a punch. The Japanese version is uh, stark and grim, and uh, downright upsetting at times in the aftermath of Godzilla's attack. Uh, it's, it's just really a well-made science fiction film. That it's a giant monster film is almost secondary to this idea of the uh, this great unknown coming and unleashing horror upon the world and it taking a you know, massive sacrifice in order to stop it. The acting is, is good, especially in the Japanese uh, version, because everyone speaks, obviously, with their own voice. Uh, I have the... A two-disc set from Sony, uh, Sony Classic Media, which is an all-black with red cover. And the first, the Gojira is entirely on the first disc with some bonus features. It's a really nice transfer. It has um, it has some grain in spots. This is a 60-year-old film that for a long time Toho didn't release, so uh, release on home media. So it, it looks a little rough, but generally it looks really sharp. The subtitles are really good and really um, nicely uh, they're, they're, they look very nice or easy to read, and they don't disappear too quickly like you get sometimes uh, with, with uh, international releases of films. So definitely check it out. If you have not seen Gojira, 
you owe it to yourself if you're listening to Earth Destruction Directive to sit down and watch it. It's just a fantastic film, and there's a reason why it's held in such high regard, and there's a reason why this film launched a franchise. It's because it's a fantastic film. And and anyone who, uh, you know, thought that, you know, maybe the the new Godzilla was a little too dark, need to watch this film to see how really dark a film about a giant lizard can be. Uh, and like I said, just, just there's lots of different releases. This has been released a couple of times over the last few years because of the new film coming out. Track it down, get a copy of it, and sit down and watch it. You will not be disappointed. Just a fantastic film. And it, did, it really did, my, did me, as a Daikaiju fan, it did my heart good to sit down and, and watch this Japanese one once again. Because it had been a few years since I had watched the original. And it's just, it's every time, it's just fantastic. I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the American release of this film right here on Earth Destruction Directive. My name is Steve Martin. I'm a foreign correspondent for United World News. I was headed for an assignment in Cairo when I stopped off in Tokyo for a social call. But it turned out to be a visit to the living hell of another world. All right, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. Gojiro was a successful film in Japan and eventually made its way over to the States a couple years later, 1956, under the title Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And this is the version most American viewers will be familiar with uh, growing up here in the United States. Now some background. The film Gojira was discovered in the U.S. by a man named Edmund Goldman. He was in Los Angeles in the Chinatown district, and he saw it playing in a theater there, a Japanese-language theater. He bought the international rights from Toho and then sold them to Jewel Enterprises, which was a small production house owned by two men, Richard Kay and Harold Ross. Kay and Ross put together the idea of taking the existing film and adding U.S. insert shots in order to kind of bridge the gap between some of the dialogue and help uh, put a, a Western face on the film to help uh, audiences get into it. So the U.S. scenes were written by Al C. Ward and directed by Terry O. Morse. Uh, what they did was they matched up the Japanese principles using stand-ins, with very careful attention to costuming details. The U.S. scenes were anchored, of course, by Raymond Burr, playing the role of Steve Martin, correspondent for United World News. The retitled Godzilla King of the Monsters was re- was excuse me was released in New York City on April 27, 1956, by Embassy Pictures, which was an outfit owned by Joseph E. Levine, one of the backers, financial backers, rounded up by Jewel to help fund the film in the first place. The western side of the United States saw the film being released by Godzilla Releasing Corporation, which was a subsidiary company of Jewel, also owned by Kay and Ross. In any event, the film was a success with U.S. audiences, grossing around $2 million in its initial run, which was a good chunk of change for 1956, and quickly becoming a staple of uh, burgeoning TV creature feature uh, films, often hosted by a horror host. Uh, shout out to Sven Gulli out of Chicago, who airs uh, on my local MeTV affiliate every Saturday night. Uh, the story of Godzilla King of the Monsters is essentially the same as Gojira, with the monster's name obviously changed to Godzilla, and the introduction of Martin as the kind of uh, audience identification character who gets to, uh, you know, tell us what's going on and uh, ask people questions so that we can move the story along. I'm not going to go through the synopsis, as I said, it's very, very similar. Essentially, uh, Martin takes the role of the reporter character Haragawa, who's a very minor character, but certain scenes where Haragawa is used asking questions, Martin is used uh, is ask, asking the questions in those scenes and are reshot. Now, Raymond Burr in my childhood is kind of an interesting story. I first saw Godzilla King of the Monsters when I was either four or five years old. I want to say I was four years old. 
So I knew Raymond Burr from a very early age as, you know, Steve Martin from Godzilla. Well, my mother is to this day a very big Perry Mason fan. And she would always watch Perry Mason in the afternoons on WTBS, a superstation. And uh, so Raymond Burr was a big part of my childhood, not only from Godzilla, but also from Perry Mason, because I would often watch Perry Mason with her when I was a young child, you know, in the afternoons or in the summer. And what's funny is that when right around the time that I first saw this, Godzilla 1985 was coming out and Raymond Burr was in it. And then right around the time that that was happening, they brought the new Perry Mason movies on, I think it was NBC, and Raymond Burr was in that. So Raymond Burr, you know, but just because of the things that I was interested in and my mother was interested in, was, I thought Raymond Burr was this huge, huge star, you know, and I would later found out he was kind of a, a mid-level guy, but the things that I was interested in happened to feature him a lot. So I got exposed to a lot of Raymond Burr over the years as a as a young man growing up, and it, I still have a, a fondness for Burr's work. Uh, I love him in Rear Window, for instance, uh, and, and I would, I, I always would try to catch the, the later Perry Mason films, and obviously, but, you know, my affection for him as an actor comes from his two turns in Godzilla, especially this one. Burr's performance is very, very staid, you know, very much on the straight and narrow. It's a subject of jokes a lot nowadays. There's a great bit on Pinky and the Brain making fun of that. If you ever get a chance to watch that one where they, uh, they're in J Pinky and the Brain are in Japan and a Gollyzilla uh, monster film and they keep cutting away to Raymond Burr standing in front of a uh, a nondescript background going, yes, I see, until he finally gets shot with a giant beam and then he fights Gollyzilla. It get, gets very, very silly. But all that having been said, Burr actually does a very good job of helping bridge the story over the parts which were removed or rearranged or otherwise changed in the translation from Gojira to Godzilla King of the Monsters. As I said, he takes the part of Haragawa, uh, one scene that's uh, the most easily to recognize of this is when uh, Martin is actually on the expedition to Odo Island and he talks to one of the natives of Odo Island along with his uh, uh, escort and Martin will say well my Japanese is a little rusty and his escort will say oh this is what the guy said they use this again in the diet it's actually a very clever way of using undubbed scenes from the film um, when in order to have the you know Martin ask for clarification from that so clever um, it can be seen as a little lazy, I suppose, but the question is, well, do you rather have it in Japanese when they should be speaking Japanese and only have, you know, Dr. Yamane dubbed? You know, it, it's, it's a question of what's the right balance, and I think the film strikes a good balance between those two. One of the major things about the film is that the opening segments are rearranged. The aftermath of Godzilla's attack is now the very beginning, with Burr providing narration over the top. Those of you who have you know, listened to my promo know some of this narration. The impact of these scenes is lessened somewhat because we don't see the attack first. We only see the aftermath, so it's not clear how we got here. But they're still powerful. The baby crying, as I mentioned, is haunting after all these years. And I mean, uh, I first saw this film about 30 years ago, and I can still vividly hear in my mind the sound of that, that baby crying. Gotten only worse since I've had kids, let me tell you. Right from the start of the film, we see some of the creative use of cutting and um, blocking to hide the faces of the stand-ins for the Japanese cast. Martin is at the hospital, and he actually interacts with Emiko. And Emiko is sh the stand-in for Emiko is shot from the rear as we look over her shoulder to see Martin laying on the stretcher bed. And then that's cut with the shots of Emiko from the Japanese film with her dialogue dubbed in. It's actually pretty decently done. There's a real brief one with Dr. Yamane at the diet, but the main ones that I always remember are Martin talking to Emiko. And so, I mean, it's, again, it's made fun of now, but at the time it was, it was pretty creative and it's done fairly well. You know, I mean, you can, if you see it, you can look for it, but you know, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to notice. When I was a kid, I never noticed that. It wasn't until I was older that I figured it out. Uh, in this film is a minor change. Ogata is a marine officer and not a salvage officer. Uh, this is just a subtle change because some of the scenes involving the fishing boat salvage were removed at the beginning. Uh, it doesn't really impact the story, just more of a trivia note than anything else. Dr. Serizawa gets a stand-in in one scene where he takes a phone call from Martin. Uh, Martin is visiting 
uh, in Japan in order to visit with Dr. Sirizawa, who he is friends with. But the two actually never interact other than that phone call, which makes sense because Martin is limited more to being in the public spaces, whereas Sirizawa stays only in his lab for most of the film until the end. And then at the end, Martin is on the ship, but clearly doesn't interact or have anything to do with the, uh, the release of the oxygen destroyer or the death of Godzilla. Um, Emiko's visit to Dr. Sarazawa loses the subplot about her asking Sarazawa's permission to marry Ogata. The subplot is still mentioned in the narration by, uh, by Burr, uh, but it's not focused on, and it's not as big a deal is made out of it as it is in the Japanese version. I suspect that this was done because by 1956, the idea of an arranged marriage like that was so long and gone in the United States that it would have seemed really alien and foreign to American viewers, whereas in Japan, I'm not going to say it was commonplace, but it wasn't unheard of by this point. So I, it, it, it's there, and it still has a love triangle between Emiko and Ogata and Serizawa, but it's not as prominent, let me say, as it is in the Japanese version. Godzilla's attack is largely unchanged. There's a few things snipped or rearranged here and there, but nothing of any import. A couple of seconds, maybe tops. Uh, Martin ends up being caught in the attack and being buried when a building collapses on him. This brings the story back around to the beginning. So we start in media res, and then about two-thirds of the way through, we come back around, so we're caught up with the story. Nice little bit of, uh, of you know, rearranging there. Uh, I'm, I like this a lot as a kid. I'm a little, I don't know. I feel two ways about it. I don't have a particular problem with it, but I like the setup of the original with the slow build. But here we get the slow build of what destroyed Tokyo and you know how did this guy get buried here rather than what's destroying the fishing ships. So they serve a similar function. The underwater sequences, as I said, in the Japanese version, they're a little bit slow moving. They're sped up very slightly. Unless you did like I did and watched Gojira and then Godzilla, King of the Monsters, back to back, you'd never notice. They're just sped up the frame rate a little bit just to let them move a little bit quicker. Serizawa's suicide plays as a surprise to Emiko in this version. Just just the way that it's, uh, the way the dialogue is and their scene in the laboratory and then her response on the ship, it just seems more like she's surprised when they pull up the, the ropes than resigned. So, again, it's still a, a noble sacrifice and it's still a good scene. It's just, again, slight cultural differences. The idea of Dr. Serizawa committing seppuku, essentially, uh, in the Japanese film would have been a more readily understood course of action than it is he that he would you know kind of imply that he was going to do this whereas in the American film it's a he keeps it a secret and so we still recognize his sacrifice but there's not the question of well why didn't they try to stop him you know because Ogata does say to bring those lines up bring those lines because Ogata doesn't want him to have to kill himself but Sarazawa has obviously has made up his mind the version I have again is the um uh, Sony Classics Media two-disc set, and this features the restored original end credits, which I had never seen before I watched this uh, release on this DVD. The original end credits of the film, just basic, uh, you know, ca- you know, list of the cast and who they played, but these were cut from almost almost immediately, I think, after the film went into syndication on television, and it's not on any VHS release that I've ever seen, and I've had a few over the years. Again, it's in rough shape, but it's the end credits. You know, you can still read it. That's all that matters. And it's just neat to have the original end credits there, something that was lost and thought gone for so long, to have it restored is a nice little touch. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, it's respectful, and it still retains some of the power of the original. Bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, this is a good film. Critics don't like this one. A lot of times they'll say, oh, just watch the Japanese one instead, but I think they're both worth worth watching. You know, this one is more of an exercise in how do we localize this film, and how do we make it work for a different audience? And you're starting with a really good film with Gojira, and you're producing a good film with Godzilla King of the Monsters, so I don't think you can go wrong. Raymond Burr is game. He treats the material with respect. I like Raymond Burr in just about anything, so again, I may be more prone, but he is fantastic in this film, and his, uh, you know, he really treats the material seriously, and and that, you know, it doesn't have to be deadly serious all the time, but this film, it kind of does, and he does a good job of it. 
And I'm very glad that we still have access to both versions, the Japanese and American versions of this film. I think that's really important. I think it's, uh, you know, not just throwing the Japanese one as a bonus feature on, or excuse me, the English one as a Jap- as a bonus feature on a Japanese release, specifically having a disc for each film, like the Sony Classics Media one does. I really like that. I think it's respectful to both films. Both of these films, as far as I'm concerned, are hugely important in the Daikaiju uh, Iga library i mean obviously gojira was the first daikaiju film the one that started it all in japan so clearly it's important but people sometimes overlook the importance of godzilla king of the monsters if not for bringing godzilla over here to the states even with the insert shots even with you know adding raymond burr would there have been the u.s market for these films would we have gotten all the other godzilla films released over here or would they have been an asian thing and not have would Godzilla not have the crossover appeal to the point that we've had not one but two big budget American Godzilla remakes in my lifetime? I don't know that that happens. I don't know that we get the big Universal spending all their big money to promote and release King Kong versus Godzilla. I don't know that we get uh, Toho releasing all the films after that. I don't know that Gamera gets released over here and picked up by AIP Television or any of that really happens. So, to me, it's very important to recognize the historical significance of both films and clearly they're both historical historically significant and they're both just really entertaining good well-made films even if you know godzilla king of the monsters has a reputation for being slightly silly i don't really buy it i've loved it since i was a kid and i still love it now so bottom line go check it out check out both these films i really like the one that you can get from uh, uh from sony the Criterion one is supposed to be beautiful. I've not had a chance to watch that one yet, but I just want to understand the Criterion edition of Gojira is fantastic. Can't go wrong with either of them. There was another low-budget release that just came out a couple of months back with different artwork. So you got a, several options. Go to 2TrueFreaks.com, use that Amazon.com link, uh, pick the version of your choice, and uh, get this one in your collection if you don't already have it. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. The menace was gone. So was a great man. But the whole world could wake up and live again. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. And we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Now's the time of our show where we like to do some listener feedback. And I have an email here from uh, Timothy Elliott, former sponsor of the Earth Destruction Directive. And subject line is EDD number 29, or Shake It, Ralph Macchio. Tim writes, greetings, Dai Sensei Luke. I guess great teacher Luke. I can live with that one. Just finished EDD number 29, and congratulations. Another great episode for the books. I enjoyed your coverage of Yangari or Yangari or whatever, and of course the Shogun Warriors. I still have my 24-inch Radine figure in my parents' attic. He's missing his rocket hand and the bird belly missiles. Let me just stop and say... I am so jealous because I have never had a Jumbo Machinder, uh, the big Shogun Warriors. I would love to get riding. Oh, man. The biggest riding I have is my Metacom RAH riding, who stands about 12 inches tall. But, man, I'd love to get one of those big 24-inch guys. Uh, I can't help you with the fist, but if you look on eBay, you can find repros of the uh, the bird uh, missiles so it may not be the originals but at least you can have them have some you know they're they're castings but hey it's better than nothing right 
Um, let's see. Tim continues. Will you cover any more Marvel Godzilla in the future? I've just got my essentials, and I'm really digging it. Yes, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before on the show, Tim, but after we finish up Shogun Warriors, and then we do the uh, the one-issue sort of epilogue to Shogun Warriors from Fantastic Four, the next comic series we're going to be covering is... Uh, Marvel's Godzilla series from the late 70s, and I'm very much looking forward to that. I have a few actual issues, but I've also got that essential volume, and I need to start tracking down those issues. Probably something I should have done before Godzilla 2014 came out, but I'm not that bright, so I'm going to have to just pay a few bucks more per issue, I guess, and track down those originals. Uh, Tim continues, my first exposure to the Korean uh, Godzilla was last year when I found a cheap DVD copy. I was struck at how similar it was to the Showa Gamera series more so than Toho's Godzilla films, complete with its own quote-unquote Korean Kenny. I loved the itching ray. It reminded me of the effect Spock created on the colonist in this side of paradise. Way to work Star Trek in there. This is a Two True Freaks podcast after all. Good job, Tim. Tim continues, I felt a real pathos towards the monster near the end when he is dosed with the chemicals and dies. His death is especially undignified considering it does look like he is bleeding from his bowels. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's where they had to hook it up. It does look a little, like I said, undignified. It's the absolute best word for it. And you're right, Yungari is very similar to Giant Monster Gamera, and I don't know if that was a, a conscious decision that they wanted to make a, a basic monster on the loose film and, you know, Giant Monster Gamera is a fairly straightforward monster on the loose film. Uh, obviously, it would have been much more difficult to make a film aping, say, Gojira instead of Gamera. Uh, could they have done it on the Korean Peninsula in the late 60s? Mm, they probably could have. I don't know that they would have. And, uh, you know, that's a discussion that, you know, that's a discussion maybe we'll have when we cover uh, the remake of Yangari at a later date, talk about some of the things that they could have done with that film, because uh, as much as the original Yangari is sort of a kind of standard giant monster film in many ways it's superior to the bigger budget remake from uh, 30 years afterwards let's see tim continues i felt the same way with the deaths of two of the the, kaiju, uh, the two blah 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 let's try that again i felt the same way with the deaths of the two kaiju in the original rodan and godzilla's meltdown and godzilla vesta versus destoroya yeah the the godzilla's meltdown and godzilla versus destoroya it's iconic I mean, it's just, at that point, we've been following Godzilla for 40 years, and then to see him die, die, you know, in, in such spectacular fashion is, is really something. The two Rodan, the original Rodan, that one was always one that got me as a kid, the idea, and Key Luke's narration, again, in that the American version of that film adds to it, talking about how one would not live without the other. Very good films. I, I can't wait to talk about Rodan. Uh, that's a personal favorite of mine ever since I was a kid, and um, I'll definitely be touching on the ending when we get there. Uh, Tim continues, on the whole, not a bad kaiju film, just a bit strange and silly. It belongs in the same category as Gappa, or from the trailer, Gappa, and the X from Outer Space. Agreed on both points. Those three films make a very neat little oddball trilogy of one-off monster movies. Tim continues on, in, my, in response to my email you read, I thoroughly enjoyed Godzilla 2014. I've seen it twice, and on my second go-around, I found more to like. I've got nitpicks like any fan, but nothing to keep me from enjoying the film. I would have liked the first film to introduce the Big G as an irresistible force and not the savior of mankind. I would leave that for the sequel. I thought the Mutos could have used a little color, and Brian Cranston could have hung around a little longer. I thought the look of Godzilla was respectful, but just a little portly, but so am I. Yeah, so am I. Seriously. They said, Luke, you going to get in the shape? I said, I'm in shape. I'm in the shape of an eggplant. Okay. Uh, Tim continues, the atomic breath looked fantastic. When the glow started at his tail, I nudged my wife and said, watch this. If you have not taken your kids to see How to Train Your Dragon 2 yet, there is a nice nod to the, his atomic breath with one of the dragons. We have not seen How to Train Your Dragon 2, but my kids do really like the first How to Train Your Dragon, and so that's one we'll definitely be picking up on DVD. I will keep an eye out for the atomic breath reference in that. And I agree, when, when, when in Godzilla 14, when Goji starts charging up the atomic breath, I mean, it was almost you could hear like, <gasps> in the audience. It was just fantastic. Uh, Tim finishes up, keep them stomping. P.S. Have you ever attended G-Fest in Chicago? So I'm Tim Elliott from Texas. I have not been to G-Fest. My brother and I were just talking about this the other day. The problem with G-Fest, and it's not really a problem, the problem with G-Fest for me is that it's in Chicago. My brother lives in New York. 
I live in South Carolina. Chicago is not close to either of those things. It's not like it's um, uh, Chiller or Resentopia or even Dragon Con or Heroes Con by me where you know, we could, I could travel to New York or my brother could travel down here and then make a shorter drive. There, unless you fly into Chicago, there's no real good way to get to Chicago from where we are. It's just low where it's located. I would love to go to G-Fest, you know, just to go to a con entirely devoted to giant monsters. I mean, that'd be absolutely perfect. And it is on my bucket list of cons that I want to go to. But right now, it's not in the cards. Maybe when the kids are a little bit older, if they love monsters as much as I do, maybe we can make a trip out there. Uh, Tim, thank you very, very much for writing in. If anyone out there is interested in writing to Earth Destruction Directive, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I'd also like to say that uh, I am now on Facebook as per my new contract with Demonzacore. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name, Directive as the last name, and you'll be able to find me. I'm also in the Two True Freaks uh, podcast group. I post in there every now and again. Uh, So if you want to put me... Know, poke me or whatever it is you do on Facebook. It's all newfangled stuff to me. Uh, just go ahead and search for Earth Destruction Directive and you'll be able to get in touch with me there. Alright, next time we're going to get back into the comics full swing. And by full swing, I mean we're doing not one, but two different four-color Daikaiju stories. Up first is going to be the Dark Horse Comics Godzilla Color Special with art by Art Adams. And this was my very first Godzilla comic book, and I am super excited. It's one of my absolute favorites. I just got this signed by Art Adams earlier this summer at Heroes Con, so I'm looking forward to talking about that. We will also be getting back into the coverage of Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors with Shogun Warriors number 12, rounding out the first year of the Invincible Guardians of World Freedom. We'll also have any news, we'll have your emails, anything else that's fit to print. Even though this is not a print medium, this is an audio medium, you get my drift. So until then, come on back next time for Godzilla Color Special, and keep them stomping. Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.